So today, Jesus and difference. This is part two of a mini-series I've been doing here and there for the last little while on unity. What does it mean to have complete unity? Please turn with me to John chapter 17, because we're going to start there. We're going to move on, but we will begin in, in John 17. And as we talk about unity today, and unity not only within a congregation, which we talked about the last time I spoke on this topic, but as we talk about unity today more between congregations, between churches, I want us to be thinking about God's, well, Jesus' vision for this. What was Jesus' vision for unity, or we might say, uh, we might say connection, or we might say cooperation between church congregations, whether within the same stream of Christianity or denomination or not? So let me ask you a question before we get stuck in. Why do you think it is that unity, that connection, that cooperation is important between church congregations? Leon? Because today we're connected, we're connected to society. We are a connected society. Oh, we're a connected society. We are today, very much so, in various means, yeah. They're all ambassadors for God. Why wouldn't we want to be connected? Okay, yeah. Conflict takes energy. So if we're not connected, it, it takes energy away. So if, if, we're not, if we're in conflict rather than in cooperation, it makes our work for God a lot harder, right? Because of the energy involved and the time. That's a very good point. Yeah, Amy. So that we don't present Christ divided to the world. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, Simon. If you have a little bit of a measurement of control, then Okay, so if we're connected and cooperating, we have a better chance of making sure that all of us churches hold to the right kind of teachings and doctrines. We have an influence on each other. Okay, that's a good point. Barry? It's very hard for people to see the love of Christ, the love of God, when there's the conflict between believers. All right. If, if there isn't there between believers, that love and respect for one another, how can people see the love of God? It'll obscure that. It's a really good point. Anything else? Any other reasons it might be a good thing that we can think of? I think some more ideas will come up as we talk today. Okay, so there are quite a few good reasons. I mean, I'm going to be very pragmatic here. Uh, you might want to find a spouse, and they might not be in this congregation. So, what are you going to do? You, you know, if we've got connections with other places, you may find that spouse there. I'm not saying you should or have to, but you could. Sometimes it's to do with our children, too. Sometimes we don't have the resources. Like, uh, we have this cooperation with Thames Valley going on, which really helps our teens and our preteens, right? And I think we help them, too. But that kind of cooperation is very helpful. And that helps our children. But as a parent, it helps us, too, doesn't it? Because we feel that sense of support. And, and, and that's really helpful. Or... Um, our children may grow up and then leave Watford and move, Lord forbid, they move anywhere else. I mean, why would they want to? But let's just say they have a momentary, momentary aberration and decide to move somewhere else. Um, then they, to know congregations in those other towns and places is very helpful for ongoing connection and collaboration. Uh, also, occasionally, some of us might actually move away. Again, Lord forbid any of us would want to leave Watford, but... Maybe the Lord takes you away, the Spirit moves you, 
Sometimes that happens, and it's great if we already have connections with congregations in other places, right? For example, um, that's our congregation in Bristol that we've mentioned recently. And of course, now, as you may know, uh, Simon and Patricia have moved to the general area, and they're now worshiping with our Bristol congregation. Uh, there's Patricia sort of on the left there, right? Simon's taking the photograph. And you've got the Danids visiting uh, there as well at that time. So Penny and I were there the Sunday before this, and it was great to visit them. It's lovely to have that connection. It's lovely to know that Simon and Patricia are, are there, that they are part of that spiritual family. And it's great to know, because I do know this is a fact, the congregation there feel very blessed by Watford, in a sense, sending Simon and Patricia, that we have that connection. And I think that's a wonderful thing. There are lots of good reasons. Sometimes other congregations have gifts that we need. At this point in time, Thames Valley are very helpful for us with our youth ministry. Sometimes, maybe we have things other congregations may need. And a lot of that practically comes through my own involvement with other things. Um, I was blessed to be able to go to Oslo and do a teaching weekend for them, and to Tallinn for a teaching weekend for them this year. Um, it was a blessing to be in Bristol recently and be able to share some things with them. Uh, our congregations in the Philippines connect, contacted me and asked me to do a leadership seminar for them, which I did online last month. Um, I think I had 100 people or more uh, in attendance. It was a, a real blessing. Um, next month, I'm going to do a, uh, a sort of teaching workshop for the London campus ministry, the London students. Um, I like being able to do those things, but part of the reason I like to do it and do it is because it creates more connections for all of us, in a sense, through that. And the church, that I always tell them wherever I go, I'm going to come on one condition, which is that you promise you'll pray for Watford. And they all do. So prayerfully, we've got people in Tallinn and Oslo praying for us that you've never met. But that's a wonderful, it's something, it's meaningful. You see, it's not just something that's just words. It's actually meaningful to have those people pray for us. And that's part, we see that in the New Testament, which we don't have time to look at today, but we do see that. Um, we have something to offer other congregations. Now, the early church had its struggles for unity and cooperation. You don't have to read far in the book of Acts or the epistles to see that. We're not going to talk about that today. We, it's, I put it in, I don't know if it's this week's or last time's edition of the Watford Word when we, I wrote about this, but it's in there. And there's some examples there which I won't go over today, but have a look at those and study those for yourself. But it, it must, has to be said that although cooperation and unity are desirable, they are difficult. Why are they difficult? What do you think? Why is cooperation, connection, and unity difficult? What are the, some, some of the things that make it difficult? We see Gentiles and Jews in the first century had a really hard time with this. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians um, and other groups. So what makes some of the, makes it difficult, would you say? What kinds of things? Stefan? I guess two things. There's leadership and there's congregation. I think leadership are sometimes very protective of the flock. And they are very, almost like the, what's the word, the mother hen protecting the chicks. Uh -huh. To protect them from any undue influences or, and they sometimes can overprotect them. And congregation, I think people have a very strong sense of identity and belonging. And sometimes when that's threatened by something different or that could create difficulties for you or Okay, so that speaks to how secure we are in our identity. A lack of security in our identity is, then makes other things, other people's perspectives or other congregational views or things 
more threatening. Mm, yeah, Robin. I think it's very interesting how much of what we believe about faith in the Bible is from our upbringing, our culture, our paradigm right. of life. And I think when, when leadership are able to give decisions and make decisions that we're not able to challenge whether what you're saying is really from the Bible or the paradigm or the culture, your way of thinking, and it's quite linked to identity these things that churches mm. grow up in a culture that they start to think this is the way you praise the Lord, this is the way you are a Christian. Is it from the Bible or <coughs> thinking? Assumptions, traditions. And then we've got you know, many different cultures, even in the UK or in other places in sure. the world. Is it, is it right or is it wrong? Is it cultural? Is it scriptural? And I think um, the humility to challenge that and to allow people to be different is quite difficult in a Christian context. People like black and white and not gray. People like black and white, and people like what they are familiar with and comfortable with. So disturbing that by connecting with other groups who have different traditions and practices can be very threatening. And going back to your protective point, I mean, there's a line somewhere between being healthily protective, because a shepherd needs to shepherd the sheep protectively in some sense. There's a line there where we cross over into, I can't think of quite the right word. It's an isolationism or a protectionism as opposed to just being protective. There must be a word someone will come up with, okay? But there's some line there, isn't there? Did you have your hand up, Ben? When people fall out with each other. Personality. Yeah. Things, opinions. Sometimes it's easy to acknowledge things might be perceived differently at an intellectual level, but if you have an argument about it with somebody who's a friend and it becomes personal, huh. then that's really difficult. When disagreements become personal, that makes it a lot harder. Yes, uh, Pen? Well, I'm thinking about how to put this together in a sentence, but I suppose we, we might have a natural tendency to be rigid in thinking and experience, but we don't see it as rigidity. And when we really then consider from a self-awareness perspective what that is, that can be challenging to, to challenge within ourselves. And it's fear, I think, fear to challenge the idea of what I have never considered to even consider may need to be considered. And that usually leads to being defensive, which is kind of a response to try and protect oneself, because if I'm wrong, then what? And the fear of the unknown of if it is not clear. Maybe we should, I'll, I'll, I'll show up in a second. But the, the, the difficulty with clarity, being comfortable with not being clear, being comfortable with ambiguity, I think is difficult for most people. Um, and different perspectives leads to ambiguity and Okay, so there's some things that are, I'm going to state this like a fact, but you know, the meaning of what I'm about to state depends a bit on how you take it. There are some things biblically that seem to be entirely clear about who God is, who Jesus is, right? But there are many other things that people would say, that's clearly right, that's clearly wrong, but may have some ambiguity. And where that line is and who agrees and disagrees with which is in which categories, significant. I'm okay with Rather than rigid, there's a, there's a line again, isn't there, between conviction, which we need to have, and rigidity, which means we're not open to rethinking things, which is not healthy. So there's a, these are, these are, some of these things are really quite subtle. And I'm talking to us as a group here. This is a mature group of Christians, and I, I trust you with these things. I think, I think it's important that we hold on to convictions tightly and strongly, but without that rigidity that means that we stop learning and stop seeing what God might be doing. But more of that in a moment. Let's go on and think about 
how we handle a topic which is frankly quite disturbing. I mean, it actually is. It's quite a controversial issue in many parts of the, of the Christian world. And, uh, and we need to think about, I think, uh, Jesus here. We need to think about how did he handle such things because this kind of unity is so important to him. In John chapter 17, he has a vision. It's not just a statement of something that was a wish. This is his vision for his followers, that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity is his vision. Then the world will know. The world will know that we are his, that we've been sent, that Jesus is who he is because of this love that we have for one another. And yes, he's talking to his disciples in the context, and it's a group around him, but it doesn't make any sense to limit it to just, just those people around him. This is the quality of relationship he hopes all believers will have towards and with one another. So what does this mean and how would this look? So let me ask you this question about Jesus. Thinking about Jesus for a minute and what you know of him in the Gospels, in terms of people of faith that were around him in his uh, three-year ministry, whether his disciples or whoever, just people that came to him who had faith in God, Amongst those people, who did he condemn? If condemn's not too strong a word, but at least, let's just take that for a moment. Amongst the people that he encountered, that he was very strong with, I mean, he told them off, he was very clear that they were in the wrong. Who did he deal with in that way? What kind of people or who got that kind of treatment? Like, you are wrong. Who do we have? Yeah, Kate? Overly religious people, yeah, for sure. Uh, Barry? The religious leaders who should know the way and thought they knew the way and were telling other people that they knew the way, right? Yes. The Pharisees in general, yes, generally. Anybody else? Who is he, you know, correcting? The, oh, the, the, in the temple courts, the traders in the temple courts. Yes, very good point. Yes. Those who push the children away. The innocents. Yeah, the ones who didn't know any better. Yeah. Sometimes they they Yeah. Yeah. You know, when they want to I want to sit on your right and I want to sit on your left. That is what we want is, you know, organize that for us, Jesus. <laughs> yes. I'm thinking people with rules for the sake of rules that don't make sense. Rules for the sake of rules. So, Control. Especially if you ask why, you know, it's really a answer to the why, just because that's how we do it. That's our tradition. That's the way it's always been done. Okay. Any others? Got the bag? I think those who ask people to do things, they want to get Ooh. Oh, okay. People who ask people to do things that they themselves either weren't doing or weren't prepared to do. All right. So most people, fall, most of those you've talked about there fall under the title of hypocrite. Not absolutely everybody, but a lot of them, right? Hypocrisy was one of the things that Jesus was strongest on of all. Uh, he condemned some people. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. There's an exclamation mark there. I'm not sure if it's in the Greek. I'll have to check later. But anyway... You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's like someone wants to come in and we're saying, sorry, no, not you. We're all fine, but you out there, no, let's lock that door. No one else in. 
uh, you yourselves do not enter. So he's saying to the Pharisees, you're not going to make it. I mean, you think you're the ones telling other people how to make it, but you're not even going to make it yourselves. Nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea. You use Zoom and the internet to spread the word. You make YouTube videos and podcasts, and you travel all over the place preaching and teaching to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, people who think Jesus was a pushover and a softie haven't read this stuff. I mean, he was really upset. He's upset with the people who should know better. We see Jesus being very firm here. Now, he did that for some, but among people of faith, who did he correct rather than condemn, if we could put it that way? Who did he correct? Who did he engage with in a way that was quite different from the way he engaged the hypocrites? Danny? The woman at the well. Very different conversation. Right? Yeah? Uh, Martha and Mary, when they were arguing about uh, their help, one of the sisters didn't want to help, and the other one was Okay. Mary and Martha. He does some correcting of Martha, but it's it's gentle. It's a very different uh, situation. Sarah? Sorry? Peter. Oh, he's very firm with Peter, but he's also, he has that extended conversation in the end of the Gospel of John. Yeah, it's very different. You're right. You're right. He made a massive mistake, but he treats him somehow differently. Yeah. Okay. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a teacher, but clearly not quite in the same category as the other hypocrites we've just been looking at in Matthew, right? So Nicodemus gets a different treatment. The rich young man. The rich young man. Ooh. Bittersweet. <laughs> All right. Yeah, he challenges him, but with a different spirit. Yeah. Akin? Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. Very different. That last minute access into paradise for him. Yeah. Sure. It sounds like people who were, who were clearly, he said, were sinful with a humility to acknowledge it. Sinful, but with an, an ability to acknowledge it. Yes. A willingness and ability, courage, humility. Yeah, a very different approach to them. I think what we see is he, he corrects the confused who are curious and humble. They may have their convictions. I think Nicodemus had plenty of convictions. He was a Pharisee and perhaps Israel's premier teacher at that time. You can read it, the Greek that way. Like, not only you are Israel's teacher, but you are Israel's main teacher. He could have been the most eminent teacher of his day. But he comes with a curiosity rather than an, uh, an antagonism and to, to have an argument with Jesus. He corrects those people. Nathaniel is another example. Can anything good come from Galilee? Like that, you know, there's a skepticism, but it's not a cynicism. There's something different between those two things. So are we seeing how Jesus treats different people in different ways? And I wonder how that might guide us in how we interact with other people of faith. I know we're not Jesus and we don't see into the heart of everybody, so we need to be cautious about that. But does it give us some wisdom, perhaps, to know how to be with other people who have some kind of Christian faith? Later on, we see the example of Apollos in Acts chapter 18. We won't look at it now. 
But Apollos is someone who teaches accurately about Jesus, but is confused about the purpose of baptism. And so Priscilla and Aquila teach him. There's a humble spirit from a very learned man. Or in Acts chapter 19, we, uh, Paul finds some disciples of Jesus in Ephesus who don't understand about the spirit. They've been baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist, and they don't understand Jesus' baptism. And so he teaches them, and they are baptized. There are various people confused in Scripture. And frankly, I've been quite confused in my Christian life at times. Maybe you have too. And what a blessing it is when someone approaches us to help us understand God's word and God's way better. It doesn't approach us with condemnation, but approaches us with the willingness to try and help and make a difference with a gentle spirit like Jesus is clear but gentle with so many that are genuinely curious and humble. Maybe there are people that can help us with some things. Maybe there are some things for us to, uh, to help others with and be helped. In Mark chapter 9, we see a rather fascinating incident with Jesus and his disciples, which is, I'd really like to know what you think about this. Uh, in Mark 9, some of his disciples see some people driving out demons, and they come to Jesus and they say, we saw someone doing this in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He's not one of us. So he's not allowed to drive out demons in Jesus' name. Not good. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, this incident doesn't tell us everything about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it tells us something. So let me ask you, looking at this, why do you think the disciples wanted to stop these people? What might be going on in their minds or in their hearts that leads them to, to go to Jesus and say, we need to stop this right now. Come on, Jesus, authorize us to stop it happening. What do you think is going on, Leon? I mean, just before, a couple of us before, uh -huh. they're being told off to be arguing about who's the greatest. So there might be sort of a bit of gatekeeping going on here, like, you know, this is our turf to keep off it. Uh -huh. The context is fascinating. Yes. Okay, why else might they be doing this? Insecurity. They're insecure. They might be threatened by what's going on. How many demons are they casting out? Is it a competition? Uh, I don't know. I thought, I thought we were your people. Yeah. Who are these? They're not with us. Am I special now as I thought I was because other people can also do it? Self-worth. Self-worth. Barry. Who also could be genuine. They could actually feel that the, the, um, the someone that's announcing Jesus by using his name without maybe the um, blessing. I think it could be worried about Jesus' reputation in a sense. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I think they may have thought that they were the chosen ones and anybody outside that group were disqualified. They were chosen. Maybe they're also worried because they've learned it from Jesus and they were instructed by Jesus. Now they're probably asking the right way. How could they do it the right way? Maybe they've not been around Jesus as much and therefore how could they really be sure they were doing it right? Okay, I can... Some of them said they had a perception that they can't do what they're doing because they were part of that particular group. If anybody else was doing it, they were part of our group, then she would do it. Yeah, he's not one of us. Mm. It's an important phrase, I think. 
He's not one of us. Interesting, isn't it? What is Jesus seeing that they are missing? They're missing something, aren't they? What is Jesus seeing that they're not seeing? Use your imagination a little bit here. But what do you think? What do you what would you guess, Penny? Pride. Jesus is seeing pride in them, in his disciples. It does feel a bit like it, especially given the context that Leon brought up right before this, he rebukes them for uh, for not welcoming the little children. So there's something maybe going on there, Danny. Some kind of elitism. Elitism. Very dangerous, isn't it? Drives people apart. I think what Jesus says is it's about me, not about it's about me, not about whether you're in this group or that group, right? It's, it's about me, Jesus, yeah. I think it's also about the bigger picture, you know, it's like the world to be fair, there's a lot of work to be done, you know, we can't exclude that. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, it's a bigger pic- there's a bigger picture at play here, Pen. I was just looking at the last verse in the, in the paragraph about being in the kitchen cup of water, something about compassion here. Why are we actually doing these miracles? Because we care or because we want to you know, have a magic trick to pass me? Mm. I mean, I think Jesus, whether it's literally or in some imaginative way, is one of the things he's seeing, he's seeing all the people who've been healed and now no longer have a demon in them that previously had a demon in them and all the blessings of that must have brought to those people who now don't, no longer have a demon. I mean, he can see that in a sense, right? And why, why would anybody want to, to stop that happening? It doesn't make any sense, right? He's seeing things. So, the outcome. He's seeing the outcome that they are not, maybe they don't see it, the disciples, but maybe they don't value it even if they do see it. They've got their priorities twisted a bit, haven't they? Yeah. Clarifying who's in control, as in the disciples are not. God is in control. Isn't God capable of driving out any demon he chooses at any time? Via whoever he wants to use, frankly. I mean, that's his business, not ours. It's an, I think, personally speaking, I find this a very humbling incident. Because although I know I don't have all the answers, I sometimes, it creeps up on me that I feel like I do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's one of those things in the religious life that is, it's an ever-present danger. It doesn't matter how self-aware we think we are, there's a temptation to some kind of arrogance, some kind of desire for control, some kind of uh, uh, de- the way we deal with fear. There's a tendency to, to put up the walls and shut the doors and not value what God might be doing outside of our belief system, outside of our congregational situation, outside of our denominational perspective. Stefan. No, you said outside our denomination. It's not just the Christians. It's uh, no. humans. Oh, yeah. People yeah. like the sense of it's human. belonging to the tribe, whether it's a football club, whether it's a knitting club, 
Sometimes it's, it's ethnic, you know, sometimes it's racial. Um, even if people are the same race, there's an ethnicism or a languageism. Right. Afrikaans or an English. It's just based on language. Yes. Nationalism. It's a really good point, and this is what actually makes it worse in Christianity, because it's natural in the world, but it should be unnatural amongst Christians. Right? It should be the opposite. We should be the people who see the good in people, who see God at work, and don't don't rely on lines and borders and things. We should be the opposite. I think that's why one of the reasons why Jesus gets so upset. Listen, we've got to wrap up in a minute here. I've got a couple of thoughts and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together because I think the Lord's Supper is what actually binds us together, actually, in so many ways. But we'll come to that in just a moment. A couple of suggestions from this passage. I think the first is when, we're, when we see people who have Christian faith who are not of our group, let's put it in whatever sense, we need to look at their life, not just what they believe. We don't really know exactly what these people believed about Jesus. They believed he was powerful, obviously, um, but their life demonstrated the work of Jesus in their lives, and so there was something valuable going on. So the question should be, how is that happening, rather than it shouldn't be happening? So look at their lives, not just at their belief, which means getting to know them well enough to know what their life is like. So if we're trying to build relationships with people outside of our group, we need to know the life, not just what doctrinal statement you've signed up to. That's secondary compared to the life in so many ways. We also, I think, from this passage, need to assume a good heart, not assume a bad heart. I think that's part of what's going on here with Jesus. doesn't mean they got everything right, but there's an assumption of they're doing something good. They must have a good heart, I think. And thirdly, I think we need to accept the encouragement that comes our way from other believers, even if they believe some things that are a bit different to us. Uh, that cup of water. Yesterday, I was at a, a, a breakfast for leaders of churches around Watford, Christians across Watford. Penny and I have been to a few. Stefan and Liesl have been to a couple. I had a great breakfast together with church leaders of all denominations across Watford. And one of the things I was able to do was to talk about the AIM program, the Bible teaching program that we had here last week ago Saturday. And they asked me to share for five minutes about it because I wanted to go out beyond just us. I wanted to go to other churches and other groups and see if we can get them involved. So I shared five minutes about it, and there were two other people who shared about other things, and then we broke into prayer, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but the person leading the meeting said, uh, can we have three prayer groups, one praying for this church about their plans, one praying for um, this couple who are new in ministry in Watford, and this group praying for Malcolm and his Bible teaching program. Uh, I, I didn't expect that, and so I felt very embarrassed. I, I, well, they're going to pray for me? Uh, okay, how are we going to do this? Uh, and so... Uh, they, I moved over to one corner of the room and I thought probably one other person will come and pray with me. I mean, I, I don't know people here very well. Anyway, half a dozen people came over. They circled up around me and took about 10 minutes to pray for me, pray for our Bible teaching program, effectively pray for us in some ways. And one of them came over and laid a hand on me and prayed for me. It was deeply moving. I, uh, and I just, I love the fact that there are people outside of us here who care about the Bible being taught well. Yeah. And making those connections is great. I now have half a dozen people who are going to, I pray, I think, remember to pray for me and pray for us. Isn't that great? And I don't know all of what they believe. But I know that they believe in Jesus and I know they believe in prayer and they're going to pray. I'm really happy about that. 
There's so many things maybe God could do if we connected a bit more. So I'm going to leave you with some questions. Not those, these ones. Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. I want to encourage us all to be praying about these three questions this week. You might want to write it down or take a screenshot or I'll send it around later. What does it mean nationally and internationally for us as a congregation? Whoever is not against us is for us. What does that mean? Secondly, what does it mean here in Watford or the places where some of us live? I know we don't all live in Watford, but as a congregation in Watford, what does it mean? Whoever is not against us is for us, said Jesus. And lastly, and most sort of where the, um, the rubber hits the road, what does this mean where you live? The town you live, the village you live, or the street on which you live? What does it mean? Perhaps you could call up another Christian from another group, ring them up and ask them, what has the Spirit been teaching your church recently? It would be a fascinating conversation, wouldn't it? To ring up somebody and say, tell me about what the Spirit's been doing in your church or in your life. Perhaps find out how they may have some resources that could bless us, or in conversation you may find some things that you have, we have, that could bless them. One of the people at Christians Across Watford asked if they could hold a, a prayer and praise meeting here on a Sunday evening. I don't know if practically that'll work, but I like the idea that we have a venue that maybe could be used for more people to get together and pray. Sounds good to me. Why not ring somebody up? Ask them. Maybe you could run a Bible group at work. I know a number of us have done this kind of thing in the past. For all denominations, just anybody to come along and talk about the Bible together. Either on, in person, if you go into a workplace, or online, on Zoom, you know? Half past 12, one o'clock for 35 minutes or something, once a week. Or perhaps you could do a Christian book club with some of your friends who are Christian. Or perhaps family members. Some of us have family members who go to other churches. Why not maybe a Christian book club together that meets every now and again? Or maybe even you could have someone who's a Christian from another group into your house for dinner. <laughs> or something like that. I would like to encourage us to pray about this. Because in the end, this really is about Jesus and his heart. Complete unity. To show the world his love. That's what it's really all about. The Lord's Supper, the taking of bread and wine, is where sinners eat together. And that's all of us. And it's all of many people out there too. In this incident, just to wrap up, Jesus meets Levi, Matthew, and he asks him to follow. And Levi gets up, leaves everything, and follows. And then Jesus has dinner with this disciple who's also a sinner, like all of us. And at his house, tax collectors and sinners, the more obvious sinners, uh, they eat with him and his disciples. There were many who followed him. Teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors and they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? And on hearing that, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When we recognize our sinfulness and that we come to this table to eat bread and wine out of God's grace, it should help us to be gracious towards other people who are different to us. We are all sinners. We are all in need of the love of Christ. And this is a time to celebrate that God has brought this body together to, 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 to rejoice over that. That's why we take bread and wine together. 
but it is also a reminder that this bread and wine is not only for us. It's for all who would follow, no matter how simple. Tax collectors are not. So, with that thought in mind, Samoa's gonna come up and pray for us. 